You're listening to Formby Podcast. In this podcast, we're back at St. Peter's Church in Formby, celebrating 275 years. Tonight, Professor Sally Sheard from the University of Liverpool, who specialises in modern history, has put together some facts and figures on Formby. The title, Formby Health History, from cradle to grave. So, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to our second talk in the series in our Heritage Week. Uh, We had an overview of the history of Formby yesterday with John Phillips, and tonight we're having a slightly more nuanced uh, look at things in a different aspect. So it's my great pleasure to introduce you to Sally Sheard. Uh, You may think this is the lady who gives you a hymn book certain times of the month, uh, but she's also, Sally Sheard is not just Sally Sheard, she's Professor Sally Sheard. Uh, She's a health policy analyst and historian. She's the author of several books and many papers. She is the Executive Dean of the Institute of Population Health at the University of Liverpool, and she's also the Professor of Modern History. And I could go on, but I don't want to embarrass her. Um, So I'm going to ask Sally to come and give us this talk, which I know she's researched very thoroughly, uh, with her assistant, I believe, who's sitting on her right. And uh, the talk is called From Cradle to Grave, Formby Health Histories. Please welcome Professor Sally Sheard. Thank you very much, Nick, for that very warm welcome. Uh, It's really lovely to be here. And and thank you, Anne, Nick, Ted, everybody, for asking me to do this. Um, I don't get out much at night. Um, I'm going to talk hopefully for about 35-40 minutes and then give plenty of time for questions but if you've got burning questions as I go through please don't hesitate, stick your hand up and we'll do questions en route so when Nick asked if I would do this he was quite careful in what he asked me to do he said, I can't remember quite what your words were Nick it was something like, we don't want anything too high powered I never do anything high-powered anyway, but it was quite daunting to think how I might cover uh, 275 years in one evening of Formby Health history. So what I've done is to choose five key turning points, and I'm going to talk about those in detail. Uh, So as we all know, and you've seen the wonderful pictures around here, Formby um, used to have a church down near St. Luke's. Uh, I'm not going to go over all the history that John went over yesterday, but St. Peter's was built in 1746 and consecrated in 1747. And it's really hard to know how many people were living here at the time when this church was built. Uh, The first census in Britain was taken in 1801, and at that stage there were 1,044 inhabitants and that included 
the Ainsdale Hamlet as well. So if you think, I don't know, Anne, how many do we seat in the church? It is about 400, isn't it? Okay. So if you imagine this church filled two and a half times over, that is the entire population of Formby in 1746. It's a really small community. So I'm going to talk about some key, key turning points that I've chosen. Um, with assistance, and I must pay great tribute to my research assistant sitting here in the front pew, Dr. John Sheard. Uh, recently retired pathologist. Um, I'm going to talk about 1746, then I'm going to talk about 1854, which I've called New Arrivals, and that's all sorts of arrivals, disease, individuals, and the railway, thereabouts. 1905 will be my next stopping point, uh, and that's when we had freedom from Ormskirk. Uh, I'll talk about that in, in more detail. 1945 is such an important date because it's the end of the Second World War, uh, but it's also the start of the planning for the National Health Service. And then my final stopping point will be 2000, and I've called it New Expectations. So at each of these points, I'm going to try and do a couple of things. I'll give you a sense of how many people were in Formby, a bit of context about what it was like, uh, and I'll talk about life expectancies and how that has changed from 1746 up to the present day. So let us start in 1746. We have the Jacobite Rebellion in Scotland and we have wars across Europe. The average life expectancy was around 41. It's hard to know because deaths weren't always very accurately recorded at that time. But we know that around one in ten babies would die before their first birthday at this stage. Most of the people who lived in Formby then were farmers, fishermen. They would have been tenants of the Blundell family of Ince. Uh, but we also know that there was a butcher, baker, schoolmaster, tailor, brewer. They were all working class people apart from the Formby family. And all of the housing apart from Formby Hall, and there's some great pictures of Formby Hall in the um, Formby Chapel, um, all of the housing apart from that was small cottages, of, and there were a few left around Formby. There was a very effective uh, poor law, the Elizabethan poor law, which required parishes to provide support for anybody who required it. And there were two overseers here for St Peter's who collected the poor rate, and they would then distribute that as food and clothing. And it's a really important part of keeping the population healthy. There were significant health risks living in Formby at that time. Uh, one of the biggest risks was malaria, partly because it was very low, poor draining, and in the St. Peter's Register for 1728, sorry, uh, the former chapel register, there is a record, it says, there was so great a mortality, was there in Formby in 1728, that the same year were interred in the churchyard 94 corpses. So if you think you've got such a small population and you lose 94 people in one year from malaria, it gives you a sense of how devastating it could be. So the first grave that we have here in the St. Peter's churchyard, I hope I've got this right, I've been poring over the grave registers on the, on the 
parish website, um, is just outside this window here. There's actually two of them, which I think are related. The first one I can find dated is John Sutton, who died in 1746. So he was buried before the church was consecrated. And then there's a Jane Sutton, who's buried in 1747. So how would you have got medical care in 1746? Well, there almost certainly wasn't anybody qualified to practice medicine living here in Formby at the time. Uh, doctors were not called doctors, they were called physicians or surgeons, or you were more likely to go and get treatment from an apothecary. The physicians were an elite group, it was very expensive to see a physician, and they were found almost exclusively in large towns like Liverpool. Um, but the St Peter's Register does show a surgeon barber, Henry Aspinall, who was here in 1754. And Anne and Ted, just to let you know that you'd have had an extra duty because it was quite often the clergy, more importantly the clergy's wives, who also provided basic medical advice and care. So let's go on more than 100 years to my next stopping off point, which is 17, um, 1854. So in the 1851 census for Formby and Ainsdale, population's gone up. Now have 1,594 people living here. Life expectancy hasn't gone up, only by a year. Life expectancy now is 42. And the reason for that is a whole series of epidemics of infections, such as cholera. Um, and you can see cholera personified here as a Turkish sailor arriving on the prow of a ship. Um, and it's a cartoon that is really making fun of the government's response to cholera. And those of you at the back won't see that there's a little rowing boat down there in the bottom corner. Uh, four men, they've been a, a temporarily formed board of health. It's a bit like sage. <laughs> uh, They've got a bottle of carbolic acid and nothing else. And it says at the bottom here, the kind of assisted emigrant we cannot afford to admit. It's that sense of fear of the foreigner that we have so often, very sadly, when we have new, unexpected, un unexplainable diseases. And the word at the top, uh, you probably can't see that. Some of you may. Um, it says not what you might think, it says Puck. <laughs> and Puck is the name of the cartoonist, but I think if you replace that first letter with another one, it probably sums up how they felt about the arrival of cholera in 1854. So what would the medical services have been like by 1854? Well, there'd been a bit of improvement since 1746, uh, we'd had the effective development of anaesthesia through chloroform in 1847, but we still didn't understand basic principles of antisepsis until the 1860s. But a key thing happened in 1854, and that was John Snow, working in London, was able to demonstrate, although he wasn't um, believed for a while, that cholera was not an airborne disease, it was a waterborne disease. Um, at that time, most people thought that diseases were caused by bad smells. It was a miasmatic theory. 
So you couldn't do a great deal if you got sick. There were no real effective drugs. Um, Formby did have a, reg a resident surgeon, though, who could do more practical things, and that was Richard Sumner. And apparently he was the only person who gave medical care in Formby for about 50 years. There's a picture of his grave. I forgot to put it in here. There's a picture of his grave on one of the uh, boards at the back there. He was also very useful because he helped with shipwrecks, trying to resuscitate people who were wrecked on the, the Mad War. Uh, and the first doctor from Southport is also buried here, uh, James Longton. Um, and he would have practised in Southport because it was larger than Formby at the time. So Formby was part then of what was known as Ormskirk Rural District, uh, the water came from Ormskirk from two deep wells. It was supplied by the Southport Waterworks Company. But although we had very good water, we had no sewer system. So every house here had its own cesspit. Uh, there was another local doctor, but he didn't work in Formby, and that was Richard Formby. And again, there's a, a nice board up in the Formby Chapel if you want to read more about him. He was born in 1790, and he started his medical training at Liverpool uh, Infirmary in age 14, in 1804. Then he went to Cambridge, became a member of the uh, Royal College of Physicians, and came back to Liverpool to practice medicine. He's an important character because he was one of the founding fathers for Liverpool Medical School in 1834. He was also, though, complicit in an illegal trade, that of uh, procuring human bodies for dissection. Uh, when he retired, he chose to come back to Formby, to his family, not to Formby Hall, but he built a house called Shorrocks Hill, which some of you will, will know. And he died there in 1865, and he's buried at St Luke's, where his Formby ancestors are buried. So poverty was a constant presence in the 19th century. But from 1834, there was a new poor law introduced. This had a much tougher eligibility regime. It, uh, it stigmatised anybody who sought to have any benefit from it. And it meant if you wanted to have poor relief, you had to go into a workhouse. The workhouse that served Formby was the Ormskirk workhouse, and it opened an infirmary in 1853. And this was really much needed because a lot of the poverty, as now, um, also caused ill health. So I've talked about an infirmary. I've not said anything yet about hospitals. And that's because there weren't many hospitals around. And the ones that were there were there for care, not for cure. They were rightly feared as being gateways to death. People were very reluctant to go into hospitals in the 19th century. Oh, hang on, let me just turn that off. Uh, and they had very good reason to fear hospitals because you could pick up all sorts of extra infections while you were in there because they didn't understand how these diseases were spread. So most people, if they could afford it, would have medical care brought to them in their own homes. 
Other key things that happened around 1854, Formby now got the railway line uh, functional as a stopping off point between Liverpool and Southport, which made it possible for Formby to be a commuter uh, town. Uh, it was also a new opportunity for Formby to grow as a health resort and a bathing resort. Although I've, I don't know if anybody here has actually tried bathing off the Formby coast. It's not something I would see as a particularly healthy activity. Uh, but Formby did appear to be healthier than Liverpool. Especially if you think in terms of the smells and the fact that it's a less densely populated place. Uh, even if it did have cesspits and horses and farms and poor quality housing. But in comparison to Liverpool, it was definitely a more desirable place to live. So the other new arrival from 1854 lived here the wonderfully named Thomas Fresh, uh, after whom Freshfield is named. Thomas Fresh was the first, uh, what we would now call environmental health officer. Um, and in 1854, he was given this brilliant job title of inspector of nuisances. Uh, so a nuisance is a, a legal term is a very ancient legal term. It means to pollute or to damage somebody else's property, uh, quite often by water or smoke or, or sewage. Uh, Fresh had been born in the Lake District in 1803, but he came to Liverpool to work as an iron founder. And after that career, he then found work as a policeman in Liverpool. And at that time, the police force also acted as a watch committee and they also oversaw the uh, scavengers. So it was a really important job uh, and it was made all the more important after 1835 when Liverpool became a municipal borough and this gave the ratepayers the opportunity to rise, uh, uh, to raise money through the rates to improve the sanitary environment of the town. So Fresh was appointed as Inspector of Nuisances, also Inspector of Slaughterhouses, and Inspector of Meat and Scavengers. And he reported on all sorts of activities and problems, particularly housing. Liverpool had some of the worst housing in the country, and it was called court housing. This is a good illustration here. You'd go through a really narrow entrance tunnel, it would open out into a court courtyard, from which you'd have several dwellings and each dwelling would be occupied by several families and there were large families then with you know upwards of six, seven children in each. There's no piped water and the only sanitary facilities are the two privies at the back that you can see there that empty into a hole in the ground and they would only be dug out about once or twice a year. So the smell would have been incredible. The flies, it is the perfect environment if you want to spread an infectious disease uh, such as uh, typhus or typhoid. So something had to change. And under the 1846 Sanitary Act, there were two more pioneering roles created. First was a medical officer of health 
and that job was given to William Henry Duncan, and there's a Duncan pub in Liverpool, for those of you familiar with the Liverpool pubs. I love this quote, because it really summarises what is so uh, desperate about this, the condition of living in Liverpool. And he says, I found the whole court, that's the picture I just showed you, inundated with fluid filth, which had oozed through the walls from two adjoining ash pits or cesspools, and had no means of escape in consequence of the court being below the level of the street and having no drain. Sorry, Anne and Ted, but it was quite rare, I think, because he has to mention he's found an intelligent Irishman. <laughs> he said, an intelligent Irishman who lived there told me it was in vain to attempt to keep the court clean. The stench at night, he said, was enough to rise the roof off his skull as he lay in bed, and the court was never free from disease. So Duncan was medically qualified. He was a physician. He was powerless. He could do nothing for people who were ill in Liverpool. His colleague, James Newlands, was the borough engineer, and he could do practical things, like installing water and sewer systems. But the most important one, I think, of the lot was Thomas Fresh. But if I tell you their salaries, you'll see quite how much they valued him. So Duncan was paid £750 a year. Fresh was paid £170. So Fresh worked for Liverpool Town Council uh, until 1859. He moved out to Freshfield in 1853 and uh, donated some of the land for Freshfield Railway Station. And he was quite a schemer. He had a lot of side deals going alongside his town council job. Uh, he invested in land. He, built he bought 150 acres here at Formby. And he was also uh, involved in some uh, other investment schemes that the council disapproved of. So when the council found out, he was required to resign. And it was such a shame. He actually left Liverpool. He went to America. Then he returned to Northern Ireland and finally came back to Liverpool, um, but died soon after. And was, he's buried in St. James's Cemetery in Liverpool next to the uh, cathedral. So in 1854, this is what Formby would have looked like, at least the central bit. It's a tiny, tiny place. Even though we've got 1,500 people, they're very well dispersed over quite a wide area. Moving on, 50 years, and we now have a population of just under 6,000. And the reason for this growth is almost entirely due to the coming of the railway, which made it possible for people to live here but not necessarily to work here. Um, Formby experienced a real boom. If you look at the housing here, a lot of it is Victorian, whether it's terraced houses um, like um, Masson's Lane or it's the, the suburban villas of, of um, Freshfield Road. And it got to that tipping point when I think you can really call Formby a suburban place rather than a rural place. So the big break came um, in the late, very late 19th century. Formby residents had been agitating for a long time. They didn't like being controlled by Ormskirk. They'd got a parish council from 1894, 
that they really wanted complete separation. And they got it in 1905 when they became an urban district separate from Ormskirk. They now had control over their own money and they did a really important thing in 1905 was they put in a sewer system. 1905, the average life expectancy was still only 50. There were still large numbers of babies dying every year, mainly due to things like infantile diarrhoea, which was caused by feeding cow's milk from contaminated glass bottles. And there were a whole series of, of common childhood infections, such as whooping cough, measles and diphtheria. And there's a very sad set of childhood deaths uh, commemorated on one gravestone here in the graveyard. Um, but before I talk about that, I'll talk about infantile diarrhoea because I think that's probably what at least two of these children have died from. These pictures were taken in Liverpool uh, just after 1905. And there are two of them. They're a set. They're the first public health campaign. And the medical officer of health asked the mother to bring her children out onto the pavement and he said to her, can you please space them and leave gaps for the children that you've lost? So this mother has lost, I, th I think, probably five, maybe six children. And the contrast really only becomes clear if you look at the companion picture which is a breastfed family from the same year. And the children, they're all there, there are no gaps. But more importantly, they look well fed, they look well clothed, they've all got good shoes. If I go back to the other one, this really doesn't look like a very thriving family, does it? So I use this for teaching a lot as an example of how short-sighted some policies can be. Because the reason that this mother bottle-fed her babies was because she had to go back to work, because there were no benefits. Whereas wealthier families could afford for the mother not to go back to work. So instead of really thinking about, well, why don't we tackle the problem of the benefits and pay benefits, so that mothers can stay at home, they have this, what is really a victimisation campaign. So now I've told you about infantile diarrhoea, and it was a huge problem, not just in Liverpool, but in places like Formby as well. That, I think, explains this really sad sequence of deaths. And they're from the Meadow family. And on this one tombstone we have recorded Elizabeth, aged four months, in 1895, Thomas, aged 10, in 1899, Edgar, aged 10 months, in 1902, Edward, aged nine, in 1905. Then there's a gap. Then they lost Leonard, who was a soldier in the First World War, who died aged 19 in 1917. And I think the worst one of all is really that two years later, uh, they lost their daughter, Dora, aged 13. So that, for me, really brings home just how unhealthy 
and what a risky business it was being a child um, not much more than 100 years ago here in Formby, which we think of as such a healthy, wealthy place to be. Leonard was one of 120 from Formby who died in the First World War um, out of a population of 6,000. 119 of them were men and there was just one woman. So in 1905, what could we do for people who were ill? Uh, we could now diagnose them through x-rays, but we still had very few drugs. Chemotherapies, whether it's for cancers, and there weren't many cancers then because people weren't living long enough to really develop signs of cancer, but chemotherapies for things like cancer or more commonly for tuberculosis were often very ineffective. Some of the most useful things that you could do were actually to have good nursing services. And Liverpool had been a pioneer in creating a district nursing service in the 1860s. And Formby copied Liverpool. Formby had a district nursing service uh, from the late 19th century. And it was set up by the Catholic Church and then taken over by the Urban District Council. And they employed two nurses very deliberately. One had to be Catholic and one had to be Protestant. Uh, there was a nursing home which provided not only nursing care for convalescents, but also it, uh, as a maternity home. Um, and they agreed that they would also support unmarried women to have their babies in the home. However, they would only support an unmarried woman for her first baby, not subsequent ones. <laughs> and it was means tested. So they made it clear that you could only use this service if you lived in houses that were less than £20 rental a year, or you could pay and have this service. Um, and the, it was such a useful scheme, it got taken over by the NHS, and the remaining funds in the charity were used to set up Maryland, um, one of the first help, homes for the elderly in Formby. So Formby was also an important destination for people who were ill. And this is a picture here, for those of you who can't see it further back, of Shaftesbury House, which was on Ravenmeals Lane. It was built as a private home, very large uh, private home and in 1888 um, a Dr Stanley Hayes Gill took the lease on it to open it as an exclusive private asylum for mentally ill people and it provided the most fantastic facilities and again it was it was care not cure um, but in these 17 acres of beautiful grounds there was a tennis court there were staff blocks as well uh, and it was the ideal place for people to come to try to have some relief from, from mental illness. So my next stopping off point then is the year 1945. Formby's population at this stage was around 10,000. Life expectancy was around 65. So at the end of the Second World War, and of course those eagle-eyed will spot this is Liverpool and that's the Victoria Monument there just to show you the utter devastation that Liverpool experienced. Formby through the war was a relatively safer place. It did have some bomb damage but it was really quite minor. One of the biggest risks of being in Formby during the Second World War was from the blackouts 
because if you cycled or you drove at night, you were more likely to have an accident, and there were several accidents recorded in the, in the Formby Times. Um, Formby also provided a really useful service in that it allowed children to be evacuated out from Liverpool, particularly from Bootle. Uh, and it, it must have been really quite an eye-opener for those children from Bootle to find themselves lodging with families here in Formby. And it, was, it worked both ways, because those families, quite often, it was their first close encounter with poverty. Rather than just driving through on their way to the city centre, they now had that opportunity to, to listen to these children, to hear what it was like living in those slums in Bootle. And the children who came here to Formby had conditions that were quite clearly related to their living conditions um, and the poverty of their families. Many of them had rickets, lots of them had um, skin infections from living um, in verminous conditions. And it was this bringing together of the classes that really was one of the main things that enabled William Beveridge to come up with a blueprint for a welfare state. Uh, and that included not just a national health service, but better benefits, better education, better housing. So before the NHS, um, healthcare was means tested. If you needed medical care, you could get a free doctor's GP appointment only if you were a working man and you paid national insurance. The wives and the children of working men had to pay to see the same doctor. And understandably, if money was tight, you wouldn't go unless you really, really had to go. So health of women, health of children was seen as less important than the health of men. There were municipal hospitals, such as Walton, that did provide some free hospital treatment. But the most prestigious hospitals were known as voluntary hospitals, and Liverpool had the Liverpool Royal Infirmary, the red brick building that's still there. Uh, if to go as a patient there, you had to have private health insurance, or you had to be part of a scheme that, that gave you a, a workplace benefit to go. So the NHS came about at a time when there were very limited um, resources and we'd just come out of six years' war in which we had really struggled to, to keep people healthy. Um, Formby had its first ambulance service set up during the Second World War. Uh, according to Joan Rimmer, there were two men put in charge of this. Um, the only reason that they were put in charge was because they had no knowledge of first aid, these two men, but they did have a telephone. <laughs> so they could take the call from the police office and then they could get the, um, the ambulance out of its shed next to the council offices and go to wherever they were needed. But I wonder how you would have felt if you'd been waiting for the ambulance to arrive. Because <laughs> that's right. The best they could do for Formby was a converted hearse, but it did the job. 1948, Formby got a new ambulance station uh, in the embassy buildings just down the road here on Piercefield Road. Um, and everybody was very excited, you know, new building, new ambulance. Gosh, this is really exciting. And it turned up 
And it wasn't a hearse, it was a converted bread van. van. Um, and it, apparently it rattled patients so much that it probably caused more injuries than the initial injuries. So after the Second World War, one thing that did continue, if the blackouts went, the rationing continued. Rationing of meat, sugar, petrol. Uh, it was unpopular, however, Britain got off relatively lightly. It wasn't as severe as the rationing and the malnutrition that we saw in other European countries. Uh, Formby did well because we are market gardeners. Um, most people could turn their hands to growing some form of fruit and veg in their own gardens or keep a few chickens or pigs. Uh, and the diet that people had and the fact that people walked everywhere or cycled meant that I think in 1945, those first years after the Second World War, was probably the healthiest some of the population have ever been here in Formby. So there's this view of Formby as, as rural it, compared to places like Liverpool, which were beginning to suffer from really bad air pollution. The smogs in Liverpool, like London, were real pea supers. Um, it was due to coal burning, and until the Clean Air Act of, 18, of 1956, it was almost impossible to do anything about it. A lot of the, um, the smoke pollution was acidic, it rotted the buildings, it made them look black, apparently it rotted nylon stockings as well. So Formby was seen as a, a healthy place to live. If you could afford it and you could commute, it was a, a, a desirable place to be. And this is where my connection with Formby comes in. Uh, this is my great uncle, Dr. Robert Kemp, and his wife, Nora, who were married just before the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, and my uncle Robert is in his military uniform here. He'd just qualified at Liverpool Medical School. And uh, my great aunt, Nora, in every single wedding photo, she has the same expression. And she said she would not smile on her wedding day because they were just about to go into a war. So, so they moved to Formby just before the outbreak of the Second World War. They lived in a little cottage on Ravenmeals Lane, and then they moved on to a house on Freshfield Road. And one of the reasons they came here was because the air was so good and because Robert could commute either to his clinics at Walton Hospital or to his consulting rooms on Rodney Street. So the NHS was a real game-changer. It opened up a wider range of hospitals to everybody, no matter where you now lived. So people from Formby weren't just obliged to go to Ormskirk Hospital. They could get referrals to Southport or to Liverpool, to the specialist hospitals in Liverpool, to the Royal Infirmary. And the other key thing that changed after the war was where, um, where births took place. Up until then, birth was an almost exclusively domestic thing. Uh, and I love this picture here on the, on the left that shows the, the GP visiting, baby being delivered at home, and the mother's there in the bed in the background, and the father's there as well looking at the new arrival. But progressively, uh, it was seen as safer for women to have their babies in hospital. So can I have a show of hands? How many of you were born at home? Okay. And how, well, and, and everyone else born in hospital? 
Nursing homes. Nursing homes, thank you very much. Okay. So we have this transition. Nursing home is one stage up, and then the hospital is seen, and certainly seen from the 1970s, this picture here, as the preferred place for births. But what if you needed care between the cradle and the grave? If you needed a GP, and of course from 1948 with the new NHS, everybody now had the ability to have a free GP care, to be on a doctor's list. Um, most of them, however, worked from their homes. They had a front parlour where they would see patients, and quite often it would be their wives who acted as their um, uh, surgery assistants, secretaries, general dogs' bodies. Building health centres really didn't happen until much later. So my final stopping-off point is 2000. And I've chosen this because it is the, the sort of the end of an era, but it's also a time of new expectations for health here in Formby. By 2001, um, Formby has a population of 23,586. It is an enormous place compared to the little hamlet of 1746. Life expectancy is around 77. And part of that increase is down to the success of the NHS, that now everybody can have free healthcare at the point of delivery. Formby had become part of Sefton in 1974, and that had meant a whole series of difficult negotiations about which hospital it should send most of its patients to. And the Southport and Formby District General Hospital finally opened on its new site in 1988. In 1999, there was a lot of pressure in Formby for a proper clinic that met everybody's needs, and that is the Phillips Lane Clinic. Uh, that had a, a half a million pound makeover with new space for baby clinics, health visitors, physiotherapists, chiropodists, and most importantly, a respiratory clinic. So by 2000, there were new concerns for health. It's not malaria now or cholera, it's asthma. Um, Formby had an unexplained higher rate of asthma than other parts of Merseyside, indeed one of the highest rates in the country. Uh, there were concerns in the early 2000s about alcohol consumption. Um, Still a few glasses left, I think, at that. Uh, they weren't so concerned about us drinking in our homes. Maybe they should have been. They were more concerned about uh, teenagers or youths drinking on the streets of Formby. Uh, there were concerns over relocation of maternity services, if you remember, when it was moved from um, Southport to Ormskirk. Um, and then the closure of the maternity unit at Aintree, where I had my two babies. Um, we had other distractions, health distractions and scares. Dr. Reg York reported in 2007 he was very concerned about the state of Long Lane Ditch and the risk of Wiles disease from the rats there. So... These were fairly minor concerns, particularly if you put it in the context of what was happening to our neighbours. So you won't see this, and I will read out the numbers for you. 
This is the equivalent of the Northern Line train. Starting here around Sand Hills and then coming up here to Southport, every station is marked and every bar is life expectancy. And this was made by a colleague of mine, Dr. David Taylor Robinson, about three years ago, so it's accurate data. And it's a sorry tale, because if you live in Bank Hall, Bootle, Seaforth and Litherland, you have an average life expectancy of 73. The further out you go, the greater your life expectancy. And in Formby, you have a life expectancy of 83. And the best place, if you were just doing it off this, is Ainsdale with a life expectancy of 85. So we're sitting here thinking, oh, aren't we lucky? Oh, what a relief. It's not to do with the place. It's to do with your ability to afford to live in a place, to be able to escape the poverty of Bootle and Litherland and Seaforth, and to be able to live in an environment that gives you the conditions that we know are the things that provide health. Health is not so much about doctors, it's not about access to hospital services. It's about the basic necessities of life. It's housing, food, exercise, community. It's about your social life, your connections, about continuing to live well, continuing to learn throughout your life. So to conclude... Our life expectancy has increased steadily since this church was built in 1746. We've gone from around 40 years of life to over 80. But are we healthier? More of our years are now spent in ill health. Perhaps that golden age really was just after the Second World War, when people were fit, when we had free access to health care, and we're not yet showing some of those lifestyle diseases such as diabetes, coronary heart disease and cancers. And there was a fully functioning welfare state. So what I hope I've made you think about in this talk is that health is so much more than just access to medicine. It's about where you live, the resources that you have and who you live with. And I hope it's made you think about how fortunate we all are to live in this wonderful community. Thank you very much. So, I, I promised to leave a few minutes if there were any pressing questions at the end. Ted's just gone to get the handheld mic in case you can. Ah, okay. He's proving his healthy bit by leaping up those steps. It's <laughs> <laughs> whether he leaps back down. Oh, <laughs> Does anybody want to risk shouting out a question while we wait for Ted? There may be nothing. I may have. Sorry, could we have a microphone here? There we go. Oh, there we go. It, it came much towards the end of your fascinating talk, for which thank you very much indeed. Um, you, you mentioned that uh, a, a particular problem in more recent years was the um, increase in the number of cases of asthma. 
not only in this area, but, but um, it seems to be that this area has one of the highest figures in the country. Um, without asking you to go into uh, great medical detail, has any explanation ever been found for, for why that, uh, that problem has existed? Oh, now I knew if I put that in that somebody would follow up with that question. <laughs> And I'm sorry to say I've not done all my homework and I've been strict telling off for my research assistant in the front row because I forgot to ask him to look at this as well. Um, John, from your medical... Can you... Anne will give you the... <laughs> I, I don't think there is an explanation for it. Um, not that I'm aware of, anyway. The only thing I've seen is that some of it is to do with diagnosis, that we didn't really have... An enough sort of specialist staff who could accurately diagnose, diagnose and a lot of it I think might have been misdiagnosed in, in Yes, I mean that, that it, there is a, an epidemic of over-diagnosis of asthma in the medical world Yeah, okay if I find out anything I'll, I'll let you know It's not a question, Sally, but I, I just think that we of our generation are incredibly lucky to have grown up with the National Health Service. My parents never had anything like that. And, you know, it's just been unbelievable that people's general health and, and well-being has improved so much, which you probably will agree with, would you? I, I would, yeah. absolutely. Um, when I, I made a... Uh, I was very fortunate to be asked to make a Radio 4 series in 2018 for the 70th anniversary of, of the NHS. And I was given the chance to choose 20 topics to make 20 programmes about. And I, I could have filled it three times over. There was just so much that we need to celebrate and acknowledge that is good about, about our National Health Service. It is world class. Um, and I'm not going to get into the, the politics of it. <laughs> is it a myth or is it true that one of Thomas Fresh's ventures was to bring night soil out from Liverpool to put on the asparagus fields? It's true. Uh, before Liverpool had an integrated water and sewer system, and I, I didn't think I'd get into sewers tonight, it's one of my favourite topics, so I'm glad, thank you for that question. Um, when they had to manually dig out those cesspits and, and privies, they had to put it somewhere, and it was a valuable resource. You know, the city council actually was quite proud, it had all of this human manure to spread. And they did have a scheme to bring it out to the areas around Liverpool, Ormskirk, up to Formby. And in its great manure, so why not use it? Any other questions? No? Good point in which to end. It is indeed. <laughs> Can I say a huge thank you to Sally? It's actually, it's been a fascinating uh, talk this evening um, it really was and I, I think we we've learned a lot I think a lot of us knew about um, the Liverpool poo but um, <laughs> but just the, the benefits and the development of how Formby has gone along and um, with health 
but thank you very much. It's, your, your research has been invaluable to us and has uh, increased our education, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Formby Podcast is an independent production. It comes to you free. If you'd like us to tell your story, or you know of a story, contact us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thank you.